Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, an Atlanta City Council members proposing a ban on short-term rentals in single-family neighborhoods. The city of Atlanta has yet to promulgate any real you know, protections or policies that will protect the public's health, safety, and welfare in cases where you have beleaguered neighbors living next to chronically unruly short-term rentals. Now, that conversation with District 7 City Council Member Howard Shook is coming up in just a moment. In other news, a Clayton County Sheriff deputy has been fired for excessive use of force. This comes after a video surfaced on social media showing two deputies restraining a black man, 26-year-old Roderick Walker. In the video, one of the deputies, who was white, is seen punching Mr. Walker repeatedly. In a statement from the Sheriff's Department, it cites a criminal investigation is now in Clayton County's District Attorney's Office. Lawyers for Walker say he was a passenger when the driver was pulled over for a broken taillight. Walker was reportedly arrested for battery and obstructing officers. He was denied bond, according to the sheriff's office, and that was due to outstanding warrants, including possession of a firearm by a felon and cruelty to children. Walker's attorneys are calling for his immediate release. And this, North Georgia Technical College students, faculty, and staff are mourning the death of the college president, Dr. Mark Ivester. The 57-year-old died Saturday from complications with COVID-19. The college wrote in a Facebook post, quote, We are all devastated and will miss him terribly. Funeral arrangements are pending. And at this time, there are 6,333 Georgians who have reportedly died to the coronavirus. And the State Department of Public Health reports there are 200 and 94,314 confirmed cases here in the state. And there are 25,369 hospitalizations of those 4,827 are ICU admissions. This, of course, is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And speaking of the coronavirus, there's going to be free COVID-19 testing at Ebenezer Baptist Church this coming Saturday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. And screenings for asthma, as well as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, also known as COPD, that's also going to be available. Face masks, children's school supplies, free flu vaccines, and food vouchers will also be available. And those interested are encouraged to pre-register at trustedmessengers.org. Again, that's at trustedmessengers.org. Org. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. An Atlanta City Council member introduced a proposal last week that could change the way 
Short-term rentals operate within the city of Atlanta. Now your short-term rentals obviously are Airbnb and Verbal and others. Now the ordinance would ban short-term rentals in quote residential neighborhoods. Now this comes after some community members voice concerns that yes, these can be problematic. Noise, large parties are often disrupting their neighborhoods. How could a ban like this be enforced? And what effect could this have on those who use the short-term rental platform to actually make a living? Joining me now to discuss all of this from District 7, City Councilmember Howard Shook. Councilman, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good afternoon. Let's clarify, because I've already gotten a lot of emails, and folks want some clarity. Would this ban all short-term rentals, even existing rentals? You know, there's been some confusion as the story has uh, sort of been disseminated. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm distressed to see several media outlets have deemed this a complete citywide ban in all zoning classifications, which it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would deem uh, short-term rentals as a prohibited use in Atlanta single-family zoning classifications. And council member, for our listeners who may not understand that, well, they say, what's the distinction here when you say a residential neighborhood and what you just defined? Is there a difference here? Uh, I think most people would say yes. A single family neighborhood is, you know, what you would think. It's uh, a single families, uh, detached houses, mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, a multifamily building which is also residential, and it's also a community in its own way. Mm-hmm. What about condominiums? Are those mixed-use developments where you have families living there, but it's also might just be attached to some commercial entities? Yeah, my, my legislation uh, does not include those uses. So we're talking about residential neighborhoods. Gotcha. Single-family neighborhoods. Gotcha. Now, this is an actually would be an amendment to the 1982 Atlanta zoning ordinance. So what would this new ordinance change? Would it simply say there can be no short-term rentals in these designated neighborhoods? Is that point blank and period? That's what it is. Uh, Yes. I'm under no illusions that, you know, we're going to end up there after a cursory discussion. There's going to be a lot of voices. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be a quick discussion. I, for one, along with other council members, want to see this disseminated to all of Atlanta's neighborhood planning units so that we can hear from everybody. Um, I'm one of only 15 council members, so there's going to be 14 other opinions yet to emerge in the conversation. And then we're going to see what the administration's appetite is. And obviously, we're going to hear from individual a short-term rental hosts and their platform representatives and the industry mm-hmm. uh, representatives. What led you to introduce this legislation, Councilman? Well, here we are years later, and the city of Atlanta has yet to promulgate any real um, you know, protections or policies um, that will uh, protect the public's health, safety, and welfare. Um, in cases where you have beleaguered neighbors living next to chronically unruly short-term rentals. Mm-hmm. Unruly? Take that further for our listeners? Uh, well, not to put too fine a point on it, but, um, you know, some of these uh, include uh, for-profit uh, parties with cover charges and valet parking and live music until five in the morning and you know weapons and drugs and alcohol 
Um, those are extreme, a shootout in, in the case of one of mine um, in the front yard. Um, and, and so while I appreciate that the industry is taking some steps uh, to sort of police this in-house, um, I, I think it's entirely inappropriate to have a for-profit private sector industry uh, be the city's guarantor of the public's health, safety, and welfare. I think better for better or worse, you have to rely on local government to, uh, to provide that. So you're saying that there has been, and I, and I imagine we could verify this with the Atlanta Police Department, that there have been shootouts. You mentioned drugs and alcohol. You have proof that there have been either drug usage or are you talking about drug transactions. I want to be clear for our listeners here. Okay, so I'm... Um, couple of things. I'm, I'm repeating what I've heard from neighbors and from what they've seen. And then there's also been cell phone footage that's made the rounds um, from inside uh, some of these venues. What did the cell phone footage show? It, it shows what appear to be uh, uh, inappropriately loud music and valet parking and cover charges. I mean, you can't use a single family home uh, for a, a commercial purpose uh, until all hours of the night and uh, inappropriate behavior involving what appear to be at times guns, hmm. uh, alcohol and uh, drug use. And council member in an interview with AJC, you talked about that you experienced this personally, that this was in, you lived near what you considered a, a party house that was a short term rental. Is that not true? No, that is true. I'm I'm one of many <laughs> such neighbors. What went on? It was just just a just partying and uh, being loud. And... Well, you, rather than rely on uh, you know my assessment, you can go on TMZ. Yeah, I saw that. What, <laughs> well, that's what was going on there. Yeah. Now, that doesn't look like a normal activity that would be seen in a single family home. People partying? I mean, people party, oh. council member. You're saying that this... Oh, well, now, come on now. Well, I, I want to... <laughs> look, I want to be fair about this. Were you talking I've about just... A, we're just talking about partying? Or... I've, never, I've never been to a party like that. <laughs> well, that... That home's generated 90 calls to APD. Okay, now we're getting to the core of the problem is it's disrupting the neighborhood in terms of just the loud music and the folks and, and all of that. Just too many people and loud music and the valet parking. One listening would say, okay, that is legitimate. That is fair. As far as anything else taking place, I can understand listeners saying if your concerns about some real criminal activity taking place, that might lead more to people being more understanding. You understand that. Is there a compromise here, Councilmember Shook, you think, with the short rental platforms here? Maybe hold them accountable. Maybe the city could find them because then that way perhaps they will be a little bit more strict with the criteria or if folks keep getting complaints and they, they shut down that, that short-term rental. Is there a compromise here? Do you need an ordinance, though, to enforce that? Well, I think at the very least, what needs to come out of this after a you know, long discussion with all the stakeholders 
is uh, the, the city needs a mechanism where it can effectively enforce um, bad operators. Mm -hmm. I totally appreciate and recognize uh, steps that some of the platforms have taken. Uh, you know, enlightened self-interest is a wonderful thing. It makes the world go around. Um, and what they're not all that quick to tell you is that there have been complete bans, complete bans in many, many cities because lawmakers wade into this innocently thinking, well, we can just put some compromise together. And at the end of the discussion, throw up their hands and say, no, banned, entirely banned. That party house in your neighborhood, were you, are you all able to talk to the owners at all of that property? Um, they've had discussions with the uh, city solicitor and the Atlanta police department. Hmm. Did they have they a response? Two or three strip clubs. They're, you know, they, they know their way around the system. Well, one would argue that may not be fair what they do on the other side as it relates though to their party, to this quote party house. Did they have a response? Did they say, okay, we're going to work on it or they, had no response what do you know i'm not aware of any response other than mm -hmm. allegedly they've put the house up for sale oh hmm. in a now state the last Go ahead, the last uh, advertised party of theirs was prevented before it started uh, by the city um there's warrants out multiple warrants out for their arrest multiple uh citations that have been racked up and you know the courts are kind of limping along because of the virus. So, you know, that's dragging this out. Hmm. In a statement, Councilmember Shook from Airbnb, it reads in part, quote, the vast majority of Atlanta hosts are sharing their homes responsibly and a blanket ban would hurt thousands of local families who depend on the income they earn hosting to help pay the bills, close quote. What is your reaction to that? Well, that's a great question. And here's what I would say. Uh, if you own and operate um, one of these uh, homes and you're a rule follower and a good neighbor. I'm going to say, well, first of all, thank you for being a good neighbor. People who generally live in a single family neighborhood have a certain set of expectations about the kind of life they want to lead. Um, and so thank you. Um, I would say that in addition to the more publicized problems, I think maybe I'm more aware as an elected official of others um, of the feeling more and more neighbors are having who live next to such a house. And even when they have never been prompted to call 911, mm -hmm. I think there's an increasing sort of fatigue that comes from never knowing who is supposed to be next door, who is not supposed to be next door, who's coming and going at all hours of the day or night. I, I think knowing your neighbors is one of those expectations people have when they live in a single family neighborhood. Now, I would also say, you know, and I know, you know, you've been a good responsible owner. This conversation has been a long time getting here and it's here and we're going to have it. Mm -hmm. I'm not out to put in, put anyone out of business, but uh, I wanted to start this discussion, started in a way that got everyone's attention. And I want this to be a discussion with a beginning, a middle and an end. And we'll, we'll see where it goes. I'm, I've been around a while. Mm hmm. And Airbnb also noted, uh, we should note in their statements that they are committed to working with the city of Atlanta. So you're open to having conversations 
with these short-term rental companies, home-sharing companies, or is the solution for you just to ban them in these single-family residential neighborhoods? Well, you know, I have 14 colleagues, and so eight uh, will decide what's going to happen, obviously with the mayor having playing a big role in that outcome. And so I'm not sure where it's going to go, but my conversation is really with the city of Atlanta. They're the ones uh, who have got to develop a system to backstop and support these beleaguered neighbors. Um, and so to the short-term rental platforms mm -hmm. and as a collective industry, my very heartfelt earnest advice to you is you need to be negotiating with the administration. Mm -hmm. I, I've been around too long to get whipsawed in between the administration, individual owners, individual uh, platforms, and the industry. My, my negotiation, to the extent it's a negotiation, really is going to be with the city and my colleagues. Well, do you have any suggestions to the city and your colleagues on what would, could be a compromise for yeah, both sides you know, here? I'm totally willing to take a look at uh, what some other cities have done, and that's develop a license permit registration uh, process um, with the expectation that the, a license can be granted and there will be conditions under which a license can be revoked. Um, and I appreciate that some of the uh, platforms are taking steps to do away with bad operators. Um, one of the, I have a couple of concerns about that. I mean, mm -hmm. the, some of the better, more responsible ones, they, they do not have a market over the entire industry. Um, and as we can see with bad alcohol licensees, it's pretty easy, it appears to me, to come back um, under a different identity, just plug mm -hmm. in somebody else's name and you're back in business. Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore told the AJC she's not sure about the ban. In fact, she's saying she's not sure it would gain traction on the council, and I'm quoting her here. I think he's throwing a wide net and it will be a discussion starter, close quote. I believe she's an astute observer. Okay. Uh, Councilmember Shook, if this ordinance does not gain traction, if it doesn't go anywhere, what other avenues will you explore? Uh, it, it's, I'm an optimist. We're, I believe we're going to end up with in a better place than we are now. Where we are now is nothing. There's, the city does nothing to curb these places. Hmm. Um, so I think everything's going to be up for grabs. What's the definition of a short-term rental? How many days a year? Uh, does the owner have to be on premises or not? Um, if the city does devise a policy, well, who's going to run it? Yeah, how do Hopefully you enforce not the it? People who are supposed to pick up our yard trimmings. Uh, how do you? How would you propose to enforce this? And who's to say that someone just won't file a complaint? because they just don't want an Airbnb or a verbal whatever in their neighborhood, just because we have an ordinance down to support that. How do you enforce this? How do you make sure that people are being fair about this? Well, for the city to 
be in the license award and presumably revocation business, um, then it's going to have to meet, you know, all applicable state standards that come with that. Hmm. That house in your neighborhood, is it still operating to your knowledge, Councilman? Uh, I believe things have been quiet the last couple of days. All right. Well, where is this proposal right now? Uh, it's been introduced. It's been routed uh, to the zoning committee. Uh, the zoning committee, since the virus-related city hall shut down, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm on the committee, we do our committee work in committee of the whole in conjunction with our uh, twice-monthly council meetings. So it won't be taken up uh, until then. Um, my recommendation is going to be that we hold it uh, so that it can be sent out to all of the NPUs so that we can garner their uh, comments. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. And I wish City Hall was open because that way I'd be in closer contact with my colleagues and I would have a much surer sense of kind of their appetites about this. What's the feedback been so far? I imagine you've heard from supporters and opponents. Uh, from council? Oh, just in general. Uh, yeah. From well, the so uh, uh, I had a couple of council members call me before I introduced it and say, hey, well, hey, you, you mind having some company as a sponsor? I said, sure. Um, I had some council members call me up and say, um, listen, I'm a little nervous about this. I assume this is your attempt to start a conversation and that you have an appetite for compromise. I said, well, we're going to see where that goes. Um, uh, the industry um, is gearing up. I mean, they're organized. They're, they're doing what I would do. Um, I'm hearing from a lot of, of people who say, well, you know, for God's sake, don't shut me down. I do everything the right way. Uh, interestingly, they all say, well, we hate party houses too, but, well, that's kind of two halves of the same hole here. So I think everyone seems to be in agreement that there needs to be better protections um, mm-hmm. against the bad ones. I mean, it, it hurts their industry, obviously. Mm-hmm. District 7 City Council Member Howard Shook, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, we will stay on top of this. Keep us posted as well. All right. Thank you very much. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's a question on the minds of many. How close are researchers to developing, testing, and then the federal approval of a COVID-19 vaccine? President Donald Trump has repeatedly stated a new vaccine could be available before the election. However, Senator and Democratic vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris has said, quote, she would not trust his word on getting the vaccine. Normally, it takes years to develop a vaccine and then receive approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And this was part of the conversation I recently had with Dr. Stephen Hahn, He's the commissioner of the FDA. 
You know, in June, while speaking with ABC News, you stated, and I'm going to quote you here, I can't predict when a vaccine will be available. And then just days ago, in a video briefing with the American Medical Association, you said, let me assure you that we will not cut corners. All of our decisions will continue to be based on good science and the same careful, deliberative processes we have always used when reviewing medical products. Commissioner Hahn, what assurances are you willing to give consumers and folks here in Georgia who are listening to this program that you will stick to that? Because everyone wants a, a vaccine. Everyone wants something to be done now. And as I stated earlier, coming to the segment, usually a vaccine takes years and years and people want it now. Yeah, Rose, let's break that down because that's a really, really important question. And thank you for asking that. So you're right. It normally takes years to develop a vaccine. So the quickest vaccine that um, I believe was the vaccine that was developed for Ebola, and it did take several years from identification of the virus to um, approval. We call it licensure, but approval by the FDA. Um, and the reason that that um, takes place is because, and you, you described it really well early on, you start with identification of the virus, mm -hmm. then um, it, it goes to the laboratory. Um, different types, there's, there's several different types of vaccines. You can use several different approaches. A manufacturer might use one approach versus another uh, because that's where they have expertise. It gets tested before it goes to the clinic. If it looks like it gives an immune response um, in animals, for example, um, then it can go uh, to phase one. Phase one is a safety trial where um, we are looking at the safety of that vaccine in human beings. So it's called first in man. Mm -hmm. You need FDA approval to do that. Then you stop. You take a look at the information that you have and you go to phase two, which is an efficacy effectiveness trial. Then you stop, you look at the data and you go to phase three, which is typically a randomized trial versus a placebo. So an, an inactive vaccine. And that's where you really get the most definitive data about safety and effectiveness. And this all happens over a several year period of time. Mm -hmm. Now, what's happened here because of the urgency of the situation? And I want to emphasize something you said. I have said this repeatedly. Of course, everybody in the world wants a vaccine as soon as possible, and everyone in the world wants a vaccine that's 100% effective. Now, I know from being a doctor, there's nothing in medicine that's 100%, but we are going to push for as an effective vaccine as possible. So, but in the current situation, in the urgency, what happened was multiple manufacturers came forward um, trying multiple different approaches, and my analogy roses, multiple shots on goal. Now, that doesn't typically happen. Mm -hmm. um, all tested very early on against the virus um, in models um, and then going to these trials. What we did at FDA with the manufacturers is to provide technical assistance to them and say, hey, you know, let's compress the timetable for these studies. So we'll review on a rolling basis the data that you generate and move what we call seamlessly from phase one to phase two to phase three. Now, that cuts off months, if not years, from the approach. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's been done is that folks are manufacturing vaccine at risk, meaning that if you're a manufacturer, you're going to wait until you get FDA approval before you even think about manufacturing the vaccine. You're not going to spend a nickel on it until you know that it's been authorized or approved. But mm -hmm. thanks to the foresight of Congress and this administration, there were funds put aside to allow for manufacturing at risk, meaning all this time 
manufacturing has taken place, and we've provided technical assistance to those manufacturers so that if there's an authorization um, and when that if that occurs, then they'll be ready to administer the vaccine very quickly. So both of those things have compressed. Now, we haven't skipped a phase of the trials and we haven't skipped assessing the data. Um, what has happened is a very significant compression of that timetable. Now, when those data come to us, Rose, mm-hmm. I want to say again what I said in that other interview and assure your viewers and the American people, FDA will not cut corners. We have thousands of scientists, many of the world's best experts on vaccines. We have reviewed and authorized vaccines over the years. We will continue to use our criteria. It's why we were explicit about what we wanted to see um, in vaccine trials. Back in June, we issued that guidance said, hey, you want to come to us? These are the data we need to see because we're not going to cut corners. Um, And so I'm very confident of the fact that although it's been aggressive timetable, mm-hmm. that we will have uh, data that we can look at and then we'll make that decision. It might be yes, Rose. It might be no. And we have to all understand that from an expectations point of view, but we will use our high and rigorous standards. Commissioner, you of all people know the importance of clinical trials, typically in, in these phases, but there's always a need for multi-ethnic participants. And that is so important regarding COVID-19, given what we're told about the disparity in cases in terms of racial groups and those in high-risk groups, is that something that you all can, you can't mandate? I don't know if you can, but is that something you all are also stressing to these manufacturers about, you know, if you're going to do these clinical trials and make sure you have a cross-cultural pool of, uh, that can participate in the clinical trials? Rose, critically important, critically important. In our guidance at the end of June, this was explicitly stated, you must have diversity of populations. Because think about it, our, our vaccine trials um, need to reflect America. Because what we want to do at the end of the day, when we see those data, if the data shows safety and effectiveness, we want to be able to say those results are generalizable to the public. So it means um, underrepresented minorities. It means the elderly. It means those with a significant Uh, comorbidities. It means the people who have been um, disproportionately affected by the virus. Now, um, we have had the opportunity to visit some of these vaccine sites, and I'll have to tell you, everyone is talking about how important this is. So, for example, I was at one in Miami, and they have um, very much paid attention to this. So I think this is top of mind for everyone. Mm -hmm. And our initial information from uh, those who had registered um, online Uh, for the trials, and there's two ongoing right now, and a third going to start very soon in phase three, the final stages. But but those who have registered, uh, there's been a significant proportion of uh, underrepresented minorities, um, elderly, et cetera, Mm -hmm. um, in these trials have registered. So um, I'm confident that they're hearing the message, but those are the data we're going to want to see because it's absolutely necessary that this generalizability occur. And, Commissioner, as we start to wrap up, and speaking of messaging, and obviously everyone's talking about, listen, you must wear a mask. We have to slow the spread of this virus through your lens, from your viewpoint. Take off your commissioner hat. But as a physician, do you think, as these kids are going back to school, that masks should be mandated in the schools? Or do you want to leave that up to districts? So so I will take my commissioner. I'm, I'm a father, too, Rose. Mm-hmm. Um This is a a really important issue. We know that um, parents uh, 
want to have a choice here, not necessarily about masks, but about school. Um, we have provided significant guidance about this uh, to uh, American, uh, the American public and to the schools. And this virus is still with us. So I strongly, and I mean strongly encourage all Americans, schools, workplaces, et cetera, to follow the very common sense approach that, that we have recommended and that other public health effort, uh, officials have recommended. Wear a mask when you can't socially distance. Socially distant, protect the vulnerable, frequent hand washing. Those are the tools that are gonna keep us moving forward. They're the tools that are gonna get us moving um, to the next phase of this and get us to the point where a vaccine might be available. These are the tools that are gonna allow people to go to work, support their families, et cetera. So it's critical that this personal responsibility be there. And that, that's regardless of whether it's school, work, stores, et cetera. And so I'm, I definitely wanna emphasize that. I do, however, Rose, believe that these decisions must be local because folks know their, their communities better than we do in the federal government. But I do want to strongly urge that these public health measures be instituted. And finally, Commissioner, look, you lead one of the most important departments, agencies, whatever, in the nation. People's lives can depend on the guidance and, and regulations that you all set forth. So if there is messaging that is frankly unproven or untrue, whether it comes from social media or especially if it comes from the White House, does that not present a problem for you? Because then you have to respond to questions from folks like me to counter messaging that, that's coming out of the administration that put you in this position. How do you grapple with that? So, so, so regardless of source, um, if there is information that isn't correct, you are absolutely right. The agency takes that very seriously. And I want to give you an example of this. Um, hundreds, and I mean hundreds, of fraudulent products are on the market, mm-hmm. um, stating that they diagnose, cure, prevent COVID-19. Um, and they're just not true. And we have spent a lot of time um, trying to educate the public. And so questions like this from you are very helpful because um, FDA authorization during this COVID-19 process, the, the, the pandemic, um, is what is our stamp of approval, and we take this very seriously. So we are going to spend a lot of time talking to the American people about what, um, what is the truth about the medical products we regulate. And then one final um, just comment to this uh, is that, you know, hand sanitizers, we have discovered that there are a set of hand sanitizers that have a type of alcohol in it that could be toxic to human beings. We've been very explicit about this. Mm-hmm. We put it on our website. Um, it contains an alcohol called methanol, and we've, we've called for a recall of those products, and that's ongoing. And so just another public health message to folks, please visit our website. It's been in the news for the last uh, month or so. But a, a, another example of how we just have to be careful, and we need the right information to be out there for people. Well, and people expect that from the FDA when it comes to products. But again, if there's messaging that is flat out wrong from the administration, is it not a responsibility of you and your physician in this to combat that and say the president is wrong or this congressperson is wrong or whomever is wrong? Is that not a responsibility that you have to the American public to say that? It is always a responsibility of me personally and the FDA to state the facts. 
and to counter when the facts are not out there. We take that very seriously, Rose, and I will continue to do that. Dr. Stephen Hahn, 24th Commissioner of the FDA, member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Commissioner, thank you so much for taking the time. We've been talking about efforts that your department has been doing to combat this virus. Thank you again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rose, thank you, and um, would love to come back and, and talk some more. These are really important issues. We'd love to have you back, Commissioner. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rose. Take care. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. According to data collected by the Atlanta Continuum of Care, last year approximately 3,200 unsheltered or homeless people were living within the city limits of Atlanta. Now, the Atlanta Continuum of Care is a collective of more than 100 organizations that work together to address homelessness within Metro Atlanta. You know, we've talked a lot about this on this program. The pandemic has exasperated the challenges many of the area's unsheltered populations face. And that led to many seeking refuge on MARTA and at rail stations. And now two organizations, MARTA and Hope Atlanta, are coming together with a new initiative. And joining me now with more is Lyle Harris. He's the Senior Director of Customer and Employee Experience at MARTA. And Jeff Smythe, the Executive Director for Hope Atlanta. Lyle, Jeff, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us on the show, Rose. Lyle, I'll start with you. I know the transit system did experience a lot of folks seeking refuge on MARTA, at the rail stations. And during this pandemic, you all saw a lot of that. Yes, we've, you know, we've had over the years uh, a challenge with homeless individuals who are seeking shelter on the transit system. And that's not unusual. It happens at major transit systems all over the country, in fact, all over the world. But we, as being part of the Metro Atlanta quality of life, we realized that there was time for MARTA to take a strategic approach to this issue. And instead of just enforcing rules against, you know, sleeping at our stations or lawyering. Jeff, the member organizations that make up Hope Atlanta, I imagine you have heard from them about the increase in need for services during this pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, our our experience, of course, was firsthand um, at the airport. We've had outreach teams there um, overnight and during the day for several years. And then um, we were doing a lot of increased outreach, uh, particularly around uh, Doraville Station, uh, downtown, uh, all over, really, all over the, the, the lines. And so it really made a lot of sense for us to be able to partner together we were doing so much outside of the stations, um, made more sense to do do work inside the stations together as well. And I want to ask both of you to address this. Did you also notice that this increase in folks seeking refuge were not who would be labeled as chronic homeless individuals, but also folks who might have just needed a place to stay because of the pandemic, they weren't working, or this was where they would sleep and then go to work during the day? Absolutely. Um, that. You know, I think we have in our mind when we think about um, individuals experiencing homelessness, about uh, someone who's chronic, who uh, is challenged with mental health issues, uh, substance abuse issues, perhaps. But many of those that we've served that we've already been able to serve through the process have been those that are are just find themselves in a really tough place. And I, I really think that in um, I, I think it could happen to any of us. And so. Uh, it, you know, whether it be just, you know, pandemic related, 
you know, we, we helped an individual who was actually a chef at a restaurant that had closed. Um, so I think there's a lot of different stories of individuals who, who go to MARTA because that's familiar. They know they can, they can seek shelter there. Uh, to your point, Rose, they can still maintain work if they've got it um, or seek work um, if they don't. But uh, it really makes sense to have outreach teams, um, you know, partnering with MARTA day in, day out. Lau? We didn't. We don't have any exact numbers around, you know, what the reasons are for folks who are seeking shelter on the on the system. But anecdotally, certainly, our employees as well as our customers have been telling us that they've seen an uptick ever since coronavirus started. Yes, certainly, from what we've been hearing from our again from our employees and our customers, that's the those are the facts on the ground that there's just more people who are needing shelter, and Marto just seemed, seemed is a convenient place to find that shelter. Jeff, with your member organizations, was there a time period where they couldn't accept folks because of the pandemic, because of the concerns about the communal spread of the virus? In terms of our partners, uh, the shelters, et cetera, even, even food pensions, yes. You know, we do so much um, street case management where we're trying to get individuals placed, whether that be in a shelter, whether that be in short-term or long-term housing. But yes, the shelters were experiencing challenges in terms of just some of them were closing, some of them had limited hours, some of them, for good reason, were limiting the number of individuals that could mm-hmm. stay each night just so that they could have safe distancing. And same with pantries, right? Lots of different pantries and food places to get food and soup kitchen type situations across the metro area that were closed, that were you know doing things differently, um, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic. Let's talk about this new initiative. How did you all come together? Our leadership at MARTA had decided a while ago that we needed to do something and trying to figure out what that something is. Fortunately, we had begun some conversations with the Regional Council on Homelessness, with the Gateway Center Shelter in downtown Atlanta, mm-hmm. and with uh, and with Hope Atlanta, uh, with whom we've had some relationships in the past. But I'll let Jeff answer that. He was sort of on the ground at the time. All right, Jeff? Yeah, from the Hope Atlanta perspective, um, because we were experiencing so many people experiencing homelessness at the airport every night, we were, we had gone from about 50, 75 individuals a night to 100 to 200 to 300 over about a month and a half. It was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy, Rose. Um, and we, so what we, we we started to do is actually not only just do outreach at the airport because we were doing a lot of COVID screening, a lot of just anything we could to, to try to help folks into um, different types of shelter or, or housing. But we actually started going up into the MARTA rail line up to the Garnett station, just to make sure that we had a team there as well, especially around um, midnight, 1 a.m., because that's when the traffic was so high. Mm. And really led to more conversations with MARTA leadership. Uh, MARTA leadership helped us with some transport as the city of Atlanta and other partners were able to open a, what we call a healthy hotel for individuals experiencing homelessness during the pandemic for those who were, you know, those who were coming to the airport and other places who were more at risk for COVID. You know, MARTA helped us with transport, just, you know, particularly with those who were in wheelchair or more fragile to be able to be transported to the hotel. So it really led, um, and thanks to the Regional Commission on Homelessness, to, to more conversations around how can we do this year round? How can we pilot something together? Um, And how can we make sure that this is kind of system wide, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think some of the challenge with the way that homeless services operate is they're by a continuum of care area. And sometimes that is that doesn't quite make sense with how 
you know, the MARTA rail lines travel and how the city works. So this gives us a chance to really coordinate across the cab and Clayton and Fulton and inside the city, outside the city. It's, it's really, really exciting. This sort of speaks to MARTA's mission about connecting people. Yes, we're basically connecting commuters who are going back and forth to work and home, but we're also connecting the community in the larger sense by, again, becoming the sort of the the the, but the sinew and the, the connective tissue for the city in, in terms of helping organizations who are doing things like Hope Atlanta. If you just join us, I'm joined by Lyle Harris, Senior Director of Customer and Employee Experience at MARTA, and Jeff Smythe, Executive Director for Hope Atlanta. We're talking about a new pilot program these two entities are coming together to help Atlanta's homeless. Well, Jeff, I want to go back again so it's really clear on how you all will help individuals. Will there be caseworkers out there? How exactly will this work? Yeah, it's really exciting, Rose, because um, actually when we've looked around the nation with our roots as Traveler's Aid, um, we've got a lot of connections with transit all over the country, and we're actually not seeing anything this innovative across the nation. So it's exciting to see. We've got two case managers we're hoping to add um, who, with uh, amazing stories, amazing lived experience, who their sole purpose is to make connections and to develop trust. And with that trust comes housing solutions, right? Mm-hmm. So some of those housing solutions are quick. Um, some of those are slow. <laughs> some of those take a lot of paperwork and birth certificates and, and identification. So it takes a minute others, we are able to move very quickly. So it's intended to be just like any case management, very individualized so that um, person experiencing homelessness can really, you know, kind of identify their goals, their strengths, um, and also what is what housing solution is going to be best for them. Um, and the idea is to get them into that housing solution as quickly as possible um, with um, permanency, right? Like mm-hmm. we don't, we don't want to just get someone into housing where they're going to be back out on the street in a month. We want to make sure there's permanency um, to any housing solutions. But Jeff, you mentioned, and Lyle, you know as well, it goes beyond for a lot of individuals needing a place, a roof over their head, shelter. Lyle, you mentioned there might be situations where there is a need for uh, mental health resources or substance abuse. Are you all able to connect those individuals that need that with the right nonprofit or with the right entity that's also involved. Yeah, absolutely. That's part of our job, right? To make sure that those connections are happening, those connections are followed up on, right? And in some cases, we're able to do that in-house, right? We've got a, we work with um, Department of Behavioral Health in the state. Uh, So we've got an outreach team that just does behavioral health work. Um, And so sometimes it's a referral just to that team. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it's a veteran, we can refer right in-house to our own veteran team. If it's a person living with HIV or AIDS, we can refer right to a a team inside of our own operation. But in other cases, it may be a a referral, as you said, substance abuse, um, other situations like that. We will make sure that the referral happens and then follow up. Um, Because, you know, we don't want to we don't want to just do a referral and and then, you know, see someone back, uh, you know, a week later, mm-hmm. still needing help. We want to make sure that we continue to track with them and, and help them get served. And how is this going to be funded? It's a pilot program for now. So, yeah, the idea was we just want to test this out and experiment. Uh, some A few other transit systems have tried similar approaches, and we just thought this was a very promising one. So the way it works is MARTA is, uh, is funding, subsidizing the cost of the case managers as well as in addition to the two Hope Atlanta case managers who, again, as Jeff said, are very experienced and very passionate about their work. 
we have two field protective specialists who are part of the MARTA Police Department who, who accompany those case managers on their rounds. And they're, they're there to make sure everything goes well and, and to, to provide any services that MARTA might be able to offer. So we're looking to expand this program, hopefully, I think after a year, but we just wanted to spend some time to figure out if it was working, how we can refine it, how we can make it better and how we can make it more expansive. But we're absolutely looking to build partnerships, not only with Hope Atlanta, but with the other service providers in Metro Atlanta. Jeff, you mentioned that you all have already been able to help some people. You mentioned one of the stories there of a chef. Can you give our listeners an example of of how you all have been able to help someone. Sure. I mean, I was looking at just our August. So we've been we've been at this a little bit more than a month and just our August report, um, 42 different individuals engaged in that time and and solutions range, right? Some mm-hmm. for some it's it's reunifying back with family um, in a, in another state. Um, with others it is simply just helping them get get transportation back to where they want to get to. Um, others it's shelter and housing. Um, but yeah, we We've had some um, uh, exciting um, stories of, you know, an, an individual who uh, really was looking for help, had had been short-term homeless, had only been a, a couple weeks, and um, uh, our organization was able to help them, the case managers were able to help them, uh, help him, excuse me, get um, connected into uh, an emergency hotel. And uh, during that time, it's a month in emergency hotel, while we're working with him on permanent housing. And so he's still in the hotel, but uh, doing well, working on uh, the process to get into permanent housing. So um, that's just one example. We've had um, a lot of different, um, really exciting stories of just um, uh, individuals that really had had nowhere to go, had nowhere uh, to turn, and really felt like they would be kind of under the radar on MARTA and had no idea that there was um, outreach case managers there to that, that could help them um, with solutions. Jeff, were there entire households or families that you all have been able to help as well? I'm not seeing, Lyle, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not seeing any families yet. We've had some with um, kind of uh, youth um, as a part of a group that we, that we connected with, and mm-hmm. we're able to make some referrals to youth-focused organizations that we partner with since we didn't do that in-house. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're there for any, any individuals, families, youth, older adults, you name it. We're, we're want to make sure that we're able to help all. And is that transition hotel still operating? Yes, absolutely. There's several that we're working with, but yes, the, the main one with city of Atlanta is still operating, still working on housing plans for, um, a good number of the individuals, but that's, that's ramping down as we're able to get, um, in, individuals into housing. And Lyle, before you wrap up, I want to give our listeners an update because this is something that we had covered. Uh, there were concerns that folks that were on MARTA that were heading to the airport to seek shelter. Have those numbers been reduced? Uh, again, I don't have those exact counts, but that's obviously our aim. and It's our goal to reduce those numbers. And again, to provide as, as much uh, in terms of services and, uh, and help and support as we can. And finally, as we wrap up, Lyle and Jeff, you all are coming together. Obviously, you may not be able to help everyone. You heard those numbers I mentioned coming into the segment, the 3,200 at the last count of homeless folks within the city of Atlanta. What is your hope for your organizations that you will be able to have a huge impact on those numbers? So we we have no illusions or delusions about our ability to 
sort of fix this problem, but we just know that we have a role to play. Our goal is to, to see if we can make an, a, a dent in the, in the challenge that people are facing every day. These are our friends, these are our neighbors, these are folks who we share the city with and this region with. So we just know that we have a, we have a very integral role to play and we'll be expanding our, our outreach as much as possible. We encourage folks, and again, we've gotten a lot of calls even internally and externally from folks who've heard about this program and they wanna do something. This is just the outpouring of compassion and the willingness to help. We ask folks to, if they haven't already, if they're writing the MARTA system, to use the See and Say app. It's a free app that's uh, on, uh, available for smartphones, and they can send reports directly to the MARTA Police Department, which will then be filtered to, to Hope Atlanta. But we need everybody. We, we can't do this alone. We're not doing this alone, but we need everyone in Metro Atlanta who cares to, to step up and help us out. And Lyle, before I get to Jeff to give him the last word, the system is not arresting people just for simply, I mean, barring any other circumstances. They're not simply arresting folks who are just seeking shelter for riding the rail system or the buses. Our credo is that homelessness is not a crime. We will enforce the, the, the laws and the rules about, you know, certain types of behavior on the system. Sure. We're not compromising on that. And ultimately, we want to make sure that it's a ideal uh, transit experience for everyone who's on the system. But homelessness is not a crime and we're not treating it that way. So that's that's really how we're approaching this. Okay. And Jeff, I'll give you the last word. Hey, thank you. We, we're we just very grateful for this opportunity to raise awareness about partnerships like this and about approaches like this, right? I think there's a sense of kind of how do we police our way out of homelessness? And, and I think what we're finding all around the nation is that's not working, that that's not a solution that's uh, certainly making connections, working on um, housing, and frankly, working on affordable housing up the pipeline is something we're also dedicated to. But for today's focus, really those outreach teams where you have individuals with lived experience who can make connections and work on each case, that really has proven over and over again to be effective. We're grateful for MARTA, we're grateful for others like the airport who have done this for years. Uh, we're even here in rows of a, of a private donor through the Community Foundation that wants to support this effort together. So these kinds of things are really catching hold, not only in our city, but across the nation. Really great for that. Jeff Smythe, Executive Director for Hope Atlanta. And I was joined by Lyle Harris, Senior Director of Customer and Employee Experience at MARTA. The two are coming together to address homelessness with a focus on direct outreach and regional collaboration with other nonprofits. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.